We'll be taking for the sermon this morning the verse that we find in this fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, verse 4. But so that we may have the context here of this verse, let us read now the fourth chapter of Jonah in its entirety. Hear now the word of the living and true God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm. When the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd, that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night, and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? The text for the sermon this morning again comes from the fourth verse where we read these words, Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? Doest thou well to be angry? Some 20 years ago, when I preached on the same text here in the book of Jonah, a gentleman of the congregation told me that I should be careful how I speak of Jonah from the pulpit. Because someday, he said, I may meet Jonah in heaven. Now, to this day, I can't say I fully understand this gentleman's remark. But if he meant by that that I should not speak too severely of Jonah from the pulpit in respect to his sin, which is open up for us here in this passage, because I may be embarrassed or ashamed in Jonah's presence for my words, then I believe that this gentleman is mistaken. It is true that for many on the judgment day, there will be shame and embarrassment, if embarrassment is not too light of a word for the judgment. But once we have entered into our eternal heavenly rest and glory, there will be no shame, there will be no embarrassment. To think so is to conceive of heaven in terms of the fallen world. Indeed, if we were speaking with Jonah in heaven about his sin... By the very reason of his perfectly sinless nature and glory, he, like all of the saints in glory, would be quick to own up to the guilt of his sin. The probability is, in fact, that he would tell us that what we read in the scripture here is not the half of it. And are we not told in the scripture that these things that we find there are for an example for us? that we may be warned, that we may learn from the mistakes of others. The greatest hazard you see is not that I would speak too severely of Jonah, but rather that we would be too easygoing with his sin. 
For if I was to excuse Jonah's sin, this sinful anger from the pulpit, would not that give license for us to excuse our own sinful anger? You know, that is sin's desire, isn't it? To make such an excuse. For while this is true to some degree of all sin, sinful anger is particularly characterized by its self-justifying nature. Let me repeat that. Sinful anger is particularly characterized by its self-justifying nature. Think about it. Think about your own sinful anger. Don't you feel justified when you are angry? Don't I feel justified when I am angry? If someone then was to find fault with you for your own anger, how would that make you feel? Would you just become even more enraged? Or would you cry out, you just don't understand what I'm saying? When we are angry, our whole orientation is about how right we are and how wrong everyone else is. We want everyone to bow to do things our way, don't we? Furthermore, we feel absolutely justified in expecting this. Indeed, it's because our expectation is disappointed that we get so angry. In our anger, we minimize, and that's not quite it, we deny any wrongdoing which we ourselves have done when we are angry. Brothers and sisters, you and I are given to excuse ourselves for this sin. Our excuses are never ending. Listen and see if any of the following excuses, which I've taken from the Puritan Richard Baxter in his insightful work, The Christian Directory, sound a little too familiar to you. The first excuse. But you see, I have a rash nature, and I have a choleric temperament. I've studied these things, and I know that I just can't help but to get angry. Here's a response to that excuse. You may be strongly disposed to anger indeed, but even so, no one is coercing you to be angry. The faculties of your soul, which your maker has given you, even your reason and your will, can yet by God's grace fulfill their office, that is, fulfill the purpose why the Lord God gave them to you, by commanding down and having mastery over your sinful fits of anger. Here's another excuse. But my anger comes so suddenly that I I do not have time to stop it. Here's another response. Don't you have the capacity to reason anymore? Or have you given yourself over to be transformed into a brute beast by your anger? Do you think that it honors God when you act like a wild animal in your rage, when he has made you to be a human being. He has made you into a man or woman or child made in the image of God to reflect his glory. Here's another excuse. Yes, but you see, my anger, it never lasts that long. I always feel sorry afterwards. Answer. If your anger is evil, then even the shortest duration of it is your sin, and you must repent of it. Furthermore, if you know that you will always feel sorry afterwards for your sinful anger, why then do you let it break out? Another excuse. But everyone is sinfully angry sometimes. Not even the best of us can avoid it. Answer, sin is not improved upon by its popularity. Let me say that again. Sin is not improved upon by its popularity. Just because many people commit the same sin doesn't justify your sin. Also, just because you may struggle especially with this sin does not mean that everyone else is. Now, it's true that we are all sinners, but we all tend to specialize, as it were, in our own particular area of sin. 
And maybe this sin of sinful anger is your area of specialization. Last excuse. Okay, but I appeal to the scripture. For haven't you read in Ephesians, even as we have here for the the memory verse of the week? Be angry and sin not. So you see, my anger can be justified. Answer. Just because there is such a thing as a righteous anger does not prove that your anger is righteous and not sinful. How do you know that your anger is righteous? Again, a definition from Baxter on righteous anger. Anger is righteous when it stirs us up to a vigorous resistance against anything which is opposed to God's glory or our salvation or the good of our neighbors and ourselves. But are these the sort of things which motivate you and drive your anger? Don't be tricked into thinking that your sinful anger is for God's cause. Haven't you read in the beginning of James, James chapter 1, verse 20, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Your anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so, as we've said before, the very nature of the sin of sinful anger is to heighten our own self-justification when we are committing the sin. We see this propensity to make excuses and defend our own anger, even in the manner of the question here, which the Lord puts to Jonah in the words of our text. Doest thou well to be angry? In other words, Jonah, do you have a just cause in being so angry? Really? Is it a good thing that you are angry? By the very style of this question, the implied answer is, of course, no, not at all. Jonah is not doing well to be so angry. But Jonah doesn't see that. Now, the reason that the Lord offers this question to Jonah in this form, we call it a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is one that's asked without the intent of hearing a reply. It's not as if, The Lord God needed the information from Jonah to be told whether or not he was angry. That's not why the Lord asked. It's not as if the Lord didn't know if Jonah was doing well or not in his anger. But this is a rhetorical question. It's one designed to either just make an assertion or to produce a certain effect on the listener. And indeed, this is what the Lord was doing with Jonah. He was asking this question so it may prick his conscience. The Lord, as it were, was holding up a mirror to Jonah's soul so that he could see his sinful condition, so that he could see his his sinful anger, that he may come to a better self-knowledge, that he may come to himself and see the condition of his soul. Oh, may it be that these same words of this text... Doest thou well to be angry, would sink down into our own souls, that we may remember them. Even that the next time you feel the flare of anger starting to rise up inside of you, that even by the work of the Holy Spirit, I tell you, that this word of God may come to mind, and you may check yourself and say, Wait a minute, am I doing well to be angry? Is this a good thing that I'm starting to rage and anger? The Lord would have us to be checked in our consciences by this word of God. And so, as we consider the words of our text here in Jonah, let us seek the Lord's help to open up this passage for us. Let's dig deeper into the question which the Lord puts to Jonah But let's also apply this question to ourselves and ask ourselves, do we do well when we are angry? Is it a good thing when we get angry? But even before we consider these things, let's let's speak a little bit to the context of our passage. Let's look into the cause of Jonah's anger. Why was Jonah angry? It's very clear and evident, isn't it? 
in this passage, that Jonah is indeed angry, we're told expressly in verse 1 that he was, quote, very angry. And we're also told that the notion of the Lord turning away from destroying the city of Nineveh displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah was not just a little bit upset. He was very angry. And yet, it does not seem, does it, immediate and obvious what the cause of Jonah's anger might be. Why was Jonah angry? Um, indeed, as I, as I uh, peruse the different classic Protestant commentaries on this passage, I found that, that there was not one single consensus as to the cause of Jonah's anger, but that there were a few different theories. One theory says that just as Jonah preached the text, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, if God does not overthrow the city in 40 days, it may make Jonah out to be a false prophet because he preaches one thing, declares that yet in 40 days something's going to happen, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't come to pass, it may make Jonah out to be a false prophet, and, and so Jonah was angry. And from this perspective, it makes out Jonah to have a greater regard to his honor than the glory of God revealed in his mercy to the Ninevites. Now, a variant on this theory, which may be a little more charitable to Jonah, is that the same idea, but instead of in respect to Jonah's honor, what about the Lord's honor? In fact, we read that the king of Nineveh acknowledged that this message was from God, for we read in chapter 3, verse 5, that the people of Nineveh believed God. So they believed, they didn't have any doubts that Jonah was a prophet sent from the Lord. So wouldn't this bring dishonor to the Lord if the message that Jonah preaches is yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown if this city is not overthrown? And yet I tell you, I found another theory in my study which I think is perhaps even more compelling than these. And the key for this theory is found in verse 2, where we read as Jonah is complaining to the Lord, he says, Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? In other words, Jonah is very zealous for the people of God. He's, he has a, a great affection for the Jewish people. And so the idea goes like this. Jonah is angry because the Lord lavished his mercy on these pagans, on these, the city of great wickedness, on Nineveh. His, his mercy could be better spent, Jonah thinks, on his own people. And so Jonah may be afraid that in the calling of these Ninevites to repentance, that the Lord may be casting off the Jews, or at least that the glory of Israel might be transferred from the Jews to the Gentiles. And we see this same sort of anger, the same sort of cause or motivation of, of anger, I believe, in a parable of the Lord in the Gospels, the well-known parable of the prodigal son. Remember the response of the older brother in that parable how he was angry with his father. Why was he angry? He was angry because of his father's mercy and love and kindness to the prodigal son once he had returned. As we read in Luke chapter 15, verses 28 through 30, and he was angry, that is, the older brother, and would not go in where the festivities were taking place for the, his younger brother. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. You can almost hear the voice of this angry young man to his father. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, he refers to his own brother as his father's son, not his brother. 
As soon as this thy son was come, who has devoured your living with harlots, you have killed for him the fatted calf. Is this not akin to Jonah's anger? And the reason that we see here in the passage in verse 2, again, where we read, Jonah speaking to the Lord, Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. In other words, he's telling us, this is the reason that I went to Tarshish. Why? Because I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. It is, uh, it is strange, isn't it? You know, we see a list of qualities about the Lord like that in the scripture, and we would expect it to be an occasion of praise to the Lord. What a great God we serve, who is indeed gracious and merciful and slow to anger and full of kindness. But no, this list, all these great qualities of God, are the reasons why Jonah is angry with the Lord, why he is very angry. Isn't that strange? And so, I believe this anger of Jonah is also, it reminds me also of another parable in the Gospels. This is the parable about the householder who hired these laborers to work in his field all day. At the end of the day, when the householder is giving out payment, those laborers that were hired in the 11th hour, for you see, the householder not only hired people at the beginning of the day, but even towards the end of the day. This, by the way, is where we get this expression, the 11th hour, that is to say at the last minute. So at the very, very end of the day, this householder hires other laborers to, to toil in the field. And so when it comes time to make payment, and the householder is giving payment to those that worked just the, for the 11th hour, and then he gives money to those who worked all day, they grumbled and resented him for giving him what they had agreed upon. Why? Because he had given the same amount to those that only worked for perhaps an hour or so. And listen to the words of the good man of the house and what he says to those, those grumbling laborers. Friend, I do thee no wrong. Dost thou not agree with me for a penny? In other words, I'm not going back against our agreement that we had from the outset of the day. I'm giving you exactly what, what we agreed upon. He goes on to say, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is it not lawful for me to be more generous to someone if I so choose to do? It's my money, isn't it? And then he goes on to say, Is thine eye evil because I am good? Is this not like what we see here with Jonah? Jonah is angry because the Lord is gracious to others, because the Lord is being kind and merciful to those who are not of God's covenant community. And it seems that this is why Jonah is angry. And so, as we have looked at this question as to what may be the cause of Jonah's anger, we must now look at the very words of our text. I want to go a little bit deeper here into the words of this question which the Lord puts to Jonah. Again, doest thou well to be angry? Well, what's central to this question? Clearly, it is the word angry. If you don't know what anger is about, then how would you make any sense of this question? Are you doing well to be angry? What is anger? Anger is essentially a feeling or emotion. But would you be surprised to hear me say that our feelings, our emotions, are subject to the moral law of God just as our thoughts, our words, and our actions are subject to the moral law of God. The fact that this is so in respect to anger is taught in our own catechism. In the Larger Catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, as it treats the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, and it comes to that place in question 136 where it asks this question, what are the sins forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? Do you remember what is the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment is, thou shalt not kill. But you see, 
The commands of the Lord, as we read in Psalm 119, are exceeding broad. The sense of those words, thou shalt not kill, is not just merely the bare face of those words. It's not forbidding simply the taking of someone else's life. But it's much broader than that. And so, as the the Westminster Assembly lists out all these sins that are forbidden by this one commandment, thou shalt not kill, it includes this phrase, quote, sinful anger. So you see, sinful anger is a sin forbidden by the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And the assembly offers this as a proof text for that phrase in Matthew 5, verse 22. And this is from that well-known place that we call the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospels. The Lord says, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Also, in this same answer to this question, what are the sins forbidden by thou shalt not kill? The Westminster Assembly gives us this phrase, quote, all excessive passions. And in the Elizabethan language, passion is often used synonymously with what we would call feelings or emotion. So all excessive emotion or feeling is also a sin forbidden by this commandment, thou shalt not kill. You see how broad and far-reaching the law of God is? And this last point about excessive passion or emotion being sinful reminds me of the writing of a particular member of the Westminster Assembly, Edward Reynolds, in his work, A Treatise on the Passions and Faculties of the Soul, which, by the way, I recommend if you want to go deeper into the nature of man, He describes there in that work what is the state of our feelings or our emotion in the state of innocency on the one hand before the fall and then after the fall how our feelings and our emotions are corrupted by sin. And so he has several points in that connection but I will limit it to just this one which again speaks to how it is sinful to have this great excess of emotion. What was the state of our feelings, or if you will, affections, before the fall into sin? It's so different from the way they are now. For one thing, our feelings at that time were portioned well, well measured. They were not inordinate. That means they were not excessive so as to disturb the mind and body. And I think this uh, directly relates to our passage here with Jonah. His passion is very excessive, very out of bounds, very much non-proportioned to the things that's going on in his life right now. And so we see that here as we are asking the question, did Jonah do well to be angry? And again, in verse 1, where it says that he was very angry. And it says also that he was exceedingly displeased. Look how his anger, the extremity of his anger, flips. For in verse 1, he's exceedingly displeased with the Lord. But when we come down to verse 6, it uses the same word, and it says that Jonah was exceeding glad. He was glad because the scourd grew up overnight and provided some shelter for him from the sun. And so on the one hand, he is exceedingly displeased and very angry with the Lord. And then because this weed grows up overnight now, he's exceedingly glad. He's exuberant. He's very happy. And so you have this swing of this extremities of emotion in Jonah. Another example where we see this excessiveness of Jonah's anger is found in verse 9. Verse 9, we see that the Lord repeats the same question. Why do you think the Lord would repeat the question to Jonah? Again, it's to wake him up, to prick his conscience. And so he repeats the question in verse 9, and he says, 
Jonah, doest thou well to be angry? And this time a particular reference to this gourd. But listen to how extreme and how wild Jonah's response is to the Lord. And he says this in the face of the holy Lord God. He says, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Yes, Lord, I am completely justified in my anger. Even if I was to die by some paroxysm, if from the violence of my fit of anger I was to die, I am still justified in my anger. The Lord asking a second time, are you doing well to be angry? Yes, I do well. Yes, I'm very justified. That's the nature of sinful anger, my brothers and sisters. Yes, we think there is no doubt. We would stake our life on it, that we are right and just in our cause, in our anger. So extreme and wild. Such, such extravagance is found in Jonah's anger. It's, such, it's so inordinate. It's not well-balanced or proportional as it was uh, before the fall in our state of innocency. And not only these things, but if you want to talk about the extremity or the extravagance of Jonah's anger, consider also how it's repeated numerous times that Jonah has a death wish. He has a death wish. Here, in verse 3, he says, because he understands that the Lord is not going to destroy the Nineveh, he says, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's how, how upset Jonah is. He's so outside of himself. He's so crazy with this anger that he thinks it would be better if he died. And then it's repeated because the gourd died. You see, the Lord prepared the gourd. And was this not for the same purpose that he asked Jonah a rhetorical question? He prepared the gourd and then he prepared a worm so that it would first give comfort to Jonah and then take away his comfort. And then thirdly, the Lord also prepared a vehement east wind, which would even further aggravate Jonah's discomfort under the hot sun beating upon his head, as we read in verse 8. And because of these things, we read in verse 8 that Jonah wished in himself to die and said again, it is better for me to die than to live. And God says, doest thou well to be angry, Jonah, for the gourd? Another way in which we see the extravagance of Jonah's anger here is from the fact we have to remember now in the broader context of this whole book, what just happened to Jonah about 40 days ago before we see him here in this fourth chapter? He was swallowed by a great fish. That was no picnic. Look at the things that he says here in chapter 2. He says, verse 5, The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. My soul fainted within me. This was not a pleasant experience. It's not something that we should envy Jonah for having had this experience. But what did it do to Jonah to change him? Yes, it's true that after the fish vomited him up on the shore that he got up and he went and preached. Actually, only after the word of the Lord came to him a second time, we were told, to tell him, now go and preach. But how else did it change Jonah? Because look at verse 2. He says, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? In other words, he's held on to the same grudge that he had when he fled into Tarshish despite his experience in the belly of the fish. Did he learn anything from that? Such is Jonah's sin of this sinful anger. Do we not let go of grudges? Like Jonah, do we, do we plant this root of bitterness in our heart and then we nurture it so that it would grow and flourish in our lives? Jonah here seems to do so. He doesn't let go. Is this not my saying? It's as if he has a tone of correction to the Lord. Like, as if he was to say, Lord, don't you understand? Don't you get it? Was this not what I told you when I was still in my country? Don't you understand? This is why I fled to Tarshish? Because I knew that you are going to be merciful to the Ninevites. 
And that makes him very, very angry. Well, if we were to leave this question that the Lord puts to Jonah and not turn the question around so it's pointing to us, I would be amiss. And so we must ask ourselves, just as the Lord asked Jonah, are you doing well to be angry? We should ask ourselves, do we do well when we are angry? Now, we might not get angry for the same reasons that Jonah got angry, but clearly the way in which Jonah is angry and all the extravagance and excessiveness of it, is that not how we are when we are enraged with anger? And so I want to ask you some questions to think about whether or not you do well when you are angry. When was the last time that you were angry? Think about it. Try to remember. Did you find that since then there has been any good fruit that came out of your anger? Was it good at that time when you were angry? Is it good if you get angry so easily, so readily? Are you quick to get angry? Is it a good thing that you get angry so often? How often do you get angry? Is it every day? Is it good that you stay angry for such a long time? Do you have a quarrel with the Lord? Do you hold on to grudges? Is that a good thing? When you are in a rage, tell me this. What happens to your Christian testimony? When you are angrily shouting down someone, from all outward appearances, how are you different from any unbeliever? How are you different? If you do have a long, drawn-out quarrel with the Lord, have you prayed about it? Have you sought help from others? Let me ask you this. Will your anger do any good for yourself? Will it do any good for others? What profit, what benefit is there in your sinful anger? What do you hope to gain from it? Will your, your anger achieve its objective? What is the objective of your anger? Have you thought about that? Do you think that your anger will make others begin to respect you? Do you think that your anger will make others like you? Is that the objective of your anger? Do you think that your anger will make others change the way that you think they should change? Is your anger going to change them? Will your anger prevent others from making mistakes? Or make them any more efficient? If you're angry and loud enough with them, will they be more efficient? Will your anger make others want to do the things your way? What is the fruit of sinful anger in your own family? Do you want your children, parents, to learn your habit of anger? Now, when we look at our children... It seems like the attributes, the characteristics they take on tend to be our worst characteristics, do they not? They seem to imitate those sooner than whatever virtues we may have. Parents, are you justified when you raise your voice in anger to your children? Would that be part of your nurturing discipline with an eye to their good? Or is it rather with an eye to serve your own idiosyncrasies, your own pet peeves? You see, oftentimes we're angry, not about any standard, any moral standard from the Lord, but just for our own convenience, for our own pet peeves. Is it good for children to witness their own parents stabbing at each other with their words? Does raising your voice in the home achieve anything more than just making the others that you're angry with angry themselves? Does it achieve anything more than making the others in your home bitter? Does your anger achieve anything more than making your children timid? Do you want your children to grow up to be timid? Anger is so unpleasant, especially in the home. Do you see that by your anger, You are trampling upon those tender feelings of love that's trying to grow up and flourish in your family. 
Be on guard and watch against suddenly breaking out in anger just over some pet peeve of yours. And remember, just because something annoys you doesn't mean that you are justified in your anger. And so I want to close by way of application with some helps for repentance. Do you see your own sinful anger as being sinful? Do you want to change? Do you want to repent? Do you want to turn away from your sinful anger and turn to the Lord with a peace, even the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want to turn and have a quietness of mind and turn away from your wrath and anger? Indeed, I didn't mention this, but the larger catechism also says that one of the things that's required by the commandment, thou shalt not kill, is that we have a quietness of mind. So if you don't have a quietness of mind, it's a sin. And so I'd like to offer some helps or directions. Most of these, again, come from the Puritan Richard Baxter. The first one is, we must learn to mock ourselves. We must learn to mock ourselves when we see how ridiculous we are in our anger, how ridiculous we are in our sin. As we have surveyed this passage in the fourth chapter here of Jonah and looked at the example of Jonah's anger, we may conclude that he was a crazy prophet, like a madman, for the very success and fruitfulness of his ministry, of which other preachers have only dreamed, you know, the city of Nineveh was, was a huge city. It was the chief city of Assyria in its day. And with this one sermon over just a couple of days, almost to the man, everyone in the city repented. And yet, this was the cause, as we said before, of Jonah's extreme anger. So we may think, wow, this was a madman. What kind of prophet of the Lord was this? Or we may view the expressions of Jonah's anger as absurd and ridiculous, especially again in verse 9, where he sounds almost like a child in a tantrum. Yes, I do well to be angry, even unto death. But here is the lesson from this text from the Word of God. This is something that we must remember. It's very important. You and I are no different than Jonah. We are subject to the same human frailties and the same sinful condition that he was. We are no better than Jonah. When we are inflamed with sinful anger, we are just as ridiculous as he was. Consider this as a help. Make an observation of others when they are angry, when they are in a fit of passion, and watch them. Take, take notice of them and see how this sin makes them so unsightly with all those frowning faces and flaming eyes and threatening and devouring looks and hurtful gestures. See how ridiculous they appear to others. Do you want to look like them? Do you understand that you look as silly as they do when they are enraged in anger? And so we should mock ourselves for our own sin. You see, what we need is self-deprecation, not self-esteem. Self-deprecation is what our souls are in need of. What is low self-esteem anyway but a sinful pride that's been disappointed? We need self-deprecation. We need to look at how ridiculous our sinful anger is. And so we should ridicule our anger to the same degree that it is ridiculous. Another help for repentance, again from Baxter, he says that the primary help against sinful anger is in making a good habit of thought in our thinking so that we live with a sense of that mercy by which God has forgiven you. You see, in the forefront of our minds, we should remember the mercy of God to us. Don't you remember the burden of your guilt under sin? Don't you remember then 
how wonderful the grace of God was and his mercy in forgiving you. How then can you point your finger to someone else in anger when you should be pointing your finger back at yourself and remember your own sin? And not only that, but to remember the mercy of the Lord and forgiving you of your sin. If you know the forgiveness of the Lord and how you deserve the anger from the Lord, how can you be angry with others? So you see, we must make sure that we keep our soul in humility and that we don't think too highly of ourselves. For humility is patient, isn't it? But a proud man takes all things that are spoken of or done against him as heinous and intolerable. Isn't that true? I'll put it this way. If you find in yourself that the least criticism about you drives you to anger and makes you feel that it's just completely intolerable that someone would say such a thing and that it's completely heinous, how could they ever imagine such a thing? Then I tell you, those are good signs that your heart is captured by the sin of pride. Another direction for help with the sin. And I know this is uh, advice that's commonly given, but it's worth repeating. Stop your anger at the beginning before it goes too far and you are overcome with rage. As Baxter says, a spark is more easily quenched than a flame, isn't it? As anger is first stirred up, command them down. Your reason and will, by the grace of God, can do much for you here if you use them according to God's design. At least, command yourself to be quiet until a sounder mind and reasoning returns to you. Don't act so hastily that you don't even think about what you're saying or doing. Do you think that Jonah paused and thought about what he was saying in the face of an infinitely holy God when he says, yes, I do well to be angry even unto death? Don't be like that. Command yourself to be quiet until your reason can return. If you delay your anger just a little bit, you may give opportunity for your anger to diminish and to give the time that you need for your good reason to return to yourself. If you cannot easily quiet down or restrain yourself, then here's the best answer. Leave the place, the company of people where you feel provoked. Just get away. Why should you commit this sin again and again? Leave them so that you, by the heat of your anger and your argumentative words, will not escalate their anger. And so, with your returning jabs, they come back at you, and it just escalates. And you know where that eventually would lead you if you don't stop it? Murder. Because again, this falls under that commandment, thou shall not kill. So, once you are alone, if you get away, that fire, that rage of anger will begin to cool down. That is, if when you're alone, you don't... Nurture those feelings, those thoughts that feed your anger. Don't dwell on the injuries that you have suffered from others when you're alone. Don't use those injuries as like a text of meditation, as it were, to think about them over and over so as to provoke you further into anger. Forbid those thoughts. Forbid them. Forbid to feed on them. As the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we should bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so, if you cannot easily quiet down or restrain yourself, then as much as you can, without avoiding your responsibilities, you must avoid the company of angry people. Your custom should be to not do business with them, not to talk much with them, certainly not to dispute with them. Now you might say, this is a strange thing. You're telling me to go outside of the world. The world is full of angry people. But would you think it strange if I was speaking about some other sin? And I would say, you should avoid all occasions and temptations to this sin. Is that not a counsel from the Word of God? We should avoid all occasions that may put us into a place of temptation, 
so that we may avoid this sin. How is that any different with this sin? The sin of sinful anger. And so I tell you again, you should leave and you should avoid angry people as far as you can. Avoid them. As Baxter says, don't stand in the sun if you are too hot already. Another direction, another help. And I just have a couple more here. We must keep lively in our mind how that our Lord Jesus Christ himself was patient and meek. Jesus Christ calls us, as we heard in the call to worship this morning, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus calls us to learn of him, for he is meek and lowly in heart. And again, from the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he pronounces this blessing, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who are not given to avenge themselves for some wrong that they suffer. That's what it means to be meek. Jesus Christ is the one who, being reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. And lastly, consider this help, that we should live as in God's presence. We should cultivate a sense of walking with the Lord so that when our passions grow bold, we repress them with the reverend name of God. We should walk with the Lord as if we are always walking in His presence. For you see, God is indeed watching you and His holy angels are watching you. They know what you're doing. They know what you're saying. The Lord knows what you're thinking even before you think it. And so you are in the Lord's presence. But may you be in the Lord's presence according to that sweetness of that communion with Him rather than according to His displeasure with you in grieving the Holy Spirit for your sin. How do we cultivate this walking with the Lord? We take those simple words of advice from the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Pray without ceasing. You always have this prayerful heart and always casting up your thoughts unto the Lord. And so, may it be with us that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, may guard our hearts in the Lord Jesus Christ. God calls us to peace. Amen. Let us pray. O blessed eternal Heavenly Father, we do praise you and we do thank you that you are such a God who is merciful and of great kindness and full of grace, even that grace and life which came in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we may draw closer to you in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we may grow in the grace of God. Help us, O Lord, to put away this unpleasant thing. Help us to put away sinful anger and to turn to you in peace and quietness of mind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.